Greetings and good morning. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 14 for the last time. This will be uh, chapter 15 after this. Not my last time preaching, Lord willing. Steve had mentioned headlines in the news. It's interesting. I've, so I've seen the news online and uh, just noticed that sometimes headlines seem big and salacious, and you click on them, and they're really not that big. They're clickbait. <laughs> Other times, though, you, you see a headline, you open it up, and wow, there's really something there. The, something looks bad on the surface, and then you start reading into it, and boy, does it ever look bad. Uh, in our passage this morning, as we're continuing in the story of the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus, uh, we see one of the sins of Jesus' one of his closest disciples. And it looks bad. And as we look at it with a little more attentive eye, boy, it is pretty bad. But it's not given here for us to wallow or to gloat. Uh, in fact, there is hope for us even as we read the stumbling, read about the stumbling of one of Jesus' closest disciples here. Let's read that at the end of Mark 14, uh, starting in verses 66. We'll read down through to the end of the chapter. Mark 14, 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Lord, we know our own hearts. And we know that if we had to try to stand in the judgment on our own merit, on our own goodness, we know that we would fall. But you have shed your blood for us so that we would be given entrance into your kingdom on the day of judgment that we would stand and that we would spend eternity in your presence, not before your wrathful presence, but before your presence of love. Help us as we look into your word here. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to move on our hearts, Lord. If there's anything unpleasing in us, pray that you would make that evident, Lord, that your word would be like a mirror to us, and that we would see some of the ugly parts so that we could turn. And find joy in your forgiveness. Help us this morning. Give us humility, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
there are really several lessons we could take from this story. Um, one of the key things I think we do see here uh, is that sin is wrong, but God forgives the repentant. We'll see both sin and repentance here. We're going to consider Peter's sin. It's kind of a painful part of the passage to read through, but we'll consider Peter's sin, and then we'll consider his sorrow. Uh, Last week, as we were in Mark's gospel, we watched the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. We watched it unfolding, uh, and at that time, I skipped over verse 54, didn't even mention it really last week. Uh, It says, And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Uh, Mentioned many times Mark's sandwiches. Uh, It's a literary technique he has. He really ties these stories together. So we get kind of an intro to Peter there. And then Mark doesn't say another thing about Peter at all until this point. We see Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin. And he gives a faithful testimony. Well, now we're going to see Peter on trial before a young servant girl. And how will he respond? I think we're meant to read those together. Well, as we see in verse 54, Peter, when he was in the garden, he fled. Jesus said, strike the shepherd and the the sheep will be scattered. Uh, He fled with the rest. But he didn't go far. He must have stayed in the shadows outside of the torchlight and followed along close enough to be able to to know where Jesus was going, but not close enough to get caught. One of the disciples apparently got a little too close, and you know the story that happened to the young man in his clothes. Uh, Peter stays kind of at a distance, and then uh, when he gets to the courtyard of the high priest where Jesus is taken... Uh, he, John's gospel tells us that John was allowed in first, uh, and then John lets Peter in after him. So uh, we don't see that in Mark's gospel, but that did happen. John tells us about that. Well, Peter comes into the courtyard, and Jesus is on trial, and the text tells us here that uh, Peter is uh, he's below. This is, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, maybe it's a good moment to explain where this is at and what kind of a house this is. Uh, Normally the Sanhedrin, according to the Talmud, the Sanhedrin met in the temple. And we see them in the temple at times in the book of Acts. Uh, The the Sanhedrin, the council of 71, the key leaders of Israel, they normally meet in the temple when they do their business. Uh, But as we saw a couple weeks ago, uh, this isn't normal business for them. This is secretive. It's really hypocritical. They're not meeting in the temple in a public setting. They're meeting in the house of the high priest. And houses at this time, especially houses of means, uh, would have your normal living area on the first floor generally, and then there'd be an upper level that would be a a big open area. It'd be a big room and so that you could host people in. So it's conceivable that all 71 members and witnesses could be up in this upper room. In fact, when Jesus has his uh, last supper with his disciples, when he's celebrating the Passover... He's in the large upper room, right? He's, he's up in that upper room. Our houses aren't really built like that now, but that was very common back then. And so Jesus is up higher. He's up. And Peter is below. Uh, some houses, I think, were different this way, but sometimes there was uh, an, uh, a gateway that came in and actually gardens sometimes in this area to sit. We're in the middle of the building, and there's building around it. 
Um, but uh, however that particular building worked out, we know that Peter's outside of it. Jesus is above, on trial. Peter's below, and he is uh, there warming himself by the fire. It's springtime. We celebrate Easter in the springtime, and uh, as well, the Passover was in the springtime. Uh, the time of these events, of course, are in the springtime, and it's at night, and it's chilly. And so people are gathering together around this fire, and they're warming themselves, and the light of the fire is uh, illumining their faces. And there's a servant girl that's there, and she sees Peter. And she kind of comes over for a little bit of a closer look to examine him. And sure enough, she recognizes that this is somebody who has been with Jesus. She says, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. Now, perhaps she saw Peter with Jesus at one point, maybe when Jesus was teaching in the temple. Uh, Probably not likely that she was with the mob that captured Jesus. Uh, Somehow, she knows that this is Peter. And so Peter is on the spot. Uh, And how is he going to respond now? He's been called out. What is he going to do? Verse 68 says, But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. This is a pretty total statement. He neither knows nor understands. There's two different words that are used there, and I think the picture is he just, he says, I got no clue what you're talking about. He's, this is just a total denial at this point. He is filled with fear, and he denies Jesus. He decides he's got to get away, but doesn't want to go too far, so he goes out to the, the gateway, and there at the gateway, a rooster crows. Apparently, Peter doesn't come to his mind the things that Jesus has just said to him hours ago. Uh, he continues on here. Uh, and this young woman must have followed Peter out, and there he is again, and she calls in the bystanders. She starts talking with them, saying that uh, this, uh, this man was with Jesus. What's the words here? It says, begins, says, she begins to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. Now she's including a group. And the public pressure of it is beginning to ratchet up. Uh, you would have thought that maybe Peter would be thinking a little more with the rooster crowing and all that. He maybe has an opportunity to do things differently, uh, but he doesn't. Once again, Peter denies Jesus. This continues to go on. Uh, and the next part of it, the bystanders they, those who are standing by, they join in. They say, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Jesus is the Nazarene. He's from Nazareth, which is the northern territory in Israel. Uh, and there was all sorts of reputation that went along with being from Nazareth. It wasn't a pop, popular or positive thing, necessarily. There's also a different accent up there. Matthew brings that out, in fact, that it's Peter's accent that gives him away. So here he is standing around talking, and they know... That Peter's not from around here. Now, I don't know what Peter was thinking. Was he hoping that perhaps he would just blend in with the group? I think he was hoping for that. Uh, But why is this guy standing around in the middle of the night at at Caiaphas' or Annas' house, the high priest's house? Why is he standing around? Well, maybe it's believable. There are other people that are there. But, man, he's got a thick Galilean accent. Uh, Peter's disguise is beginning to melt right off of him. Uh, he is becoming publicly known and associated with Jesus. And what is he going to do? Uh, well, Peter 
goes into full-on survival mode. As bad as it's been, it just gets worse here. Verse 71 tells us, But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Uh, It says here that he invokes a curse on himself. The word there is the verb for anathema. He curses himself. What he's basically saying in this, and he doesn't record everything he says here, but he's uh, the, the general Hebrew formula for a curse that you would invoke is basically something along the lines of, if I am telling a lie, may God strike me. May God do harm to me. Those kinds of things. If what I'm saying is untrue, may God visit me with vengeance for lying. He is that powerfully disassociating himself with Jesus. He says, I do not know this man. You know, the more we examine this, the worse it gets. Think about the layers of sin here that Peter's committing. First of all, he's lying. Uh, He does know Jesus. In fact, he knows Jesus very, very well. Jesus has let him in to all of these deep and even hidden from the public aspects of his life. Jesus has drawn Peter in near. And Peter says, I got no idea who this guy is. I don't know him. In his lying, he's also breaking oaths. He's made oaths, and he's breaking them, because it's not true. In fact, Jesus had already told him, don't make oaths at all. Beyond that, as Peter's doing this, he is responding out of fear. He's looking at the situation, he's calculating what's going on, and his response is not out of faith. His response is out of fear. And then, of course, on top of all that, and most serious of all, he is denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Being put publicly out there, being associated with Jesus, he says, I don't know this guy. He's got nothing to do with me. The sin here is very serious. And it's very, very sad as well. I mean, just a matter of hours ago, Peter saying that he will die with Jesus before he denies him. And now, he says, Jesus who? Now, I've mentioned this before, but Mark is likely writing this gospel from Rome, and he is likely writing it with Peter at his elbow. So the reality that this is included in here is because Peter shared it. I can't imagine that Peter had a very good time relaying these facts. It must not have been an enjoyable experience. But Peter must have been the one to share this because there wasn't anybody else around that we know of who heard these words. Peter has told on himself here. And the Holy Spirit has inspired Mark to include these details, not so that we can gloat over Peter and think, well, how could you ever do that? Instead, this is included here for our growth And our humility. One of the key reminders from the life of Peter for us is this. Stay humble. There's an old adage that says that the best of men are men at best. And let's be honest. As we read the Bible, the Bible is brutally honest with all of its heroes. Sometimes uncomfortably honest with its heroes. Think of Abraham, the, the father of the Jewish nation, the father of many nations even. 
the man of faith, one who believes God and it is counted to him as righteousness. Well, God promises him a child, and he doesn't have a child. And so he takes his wife's offer up on Hagar, and he tries to fulfill the promise of God by the means of man. And think about all of the pain throughout history that brought into his family. Think about Moses, a man who must have had incredible patience with people throughout years and years and years in the wilderness, and at at a point he loses his patience. We see in the book of Numbers, and God tells him to speak to the rock and water will come out, and, and he strikes it twice, and he sins in a public fashion before all of the watching nation. And the consequences for, a, for Moses' sin there, he's not able to enter the promised land. Think about that. He spent 80 years uh, with the people, right? Is that, am I got the years right here? Maybe it was 40 years at the end of his life. 40 years in the wilderness, at least. He spends all this time there, and he doesn't get to enter into the promised land. His sin had consequences. Uh, and uh, we see such a great man as Moses not able to enter the promised land, or David, all of the incredible success that God gives to David. If anybody who would be, if there was ever a character who would be lionized and put forward as this fantastic, flawless person, maybe it would be David. But then there's Second Samuel 11. Right at the height of everything going amazing for David, he stumbles into sin. First he takes a man's wife, and then he takes his life. And God has to call him to repentance. God records these failures throughout his word to show us what our hearts are capable of. Even the best and the brightest, the most advantaged of all the characters in the Bible, they have their flaws. And the scriptures are like a mirror to us to show us our own hearts and lives. Left to ourselves, apart from Christ, apart from the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit in us, we would all be consumed by our pride. We would be full of anger, full of lust, eaten by envy and greed and even things that aren't polite to speak about in public. If we were left to ourselves truly, entirely left to our own sin, that would be true of all of us. We should read these accounts, as painful as they are, to to remind us what we are capable of. We are capable, along with Peter, of denying the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us would want to do that. Obviously, all of us know today we want to be faithful. Uh, But this is here for our humility. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, he lists a number of pretty serious sins that the Israelite people committed. uh, And he doesn't turn to say, wow, they're pretty bad. His takeaway for that, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. The sins in the scriptures serve as warnings for us, that we would be humble. And Paul doesn't leave it there. The next verse, he gives us a promise as well. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, we also see hope there. As we look at Peter and him in this moment, one of the things that we can see is Peter had a lot of 
confidence in himself. He says, you know what? Maybe all these guys over here, they will betray you. or Maybe they'll, they'll fail you and run away. Not me. I'm going to be there to the end. Peter has all sorts of confidence in himself. I think that's another warning for us. Our confidence against sin in our lives must never be in ourselves. We don't have the resources. But with God, there is help. He can stand with us. He can strengthen us. He can support us. Uh, If God was able to defeat the overwhelming number of physical enemies that David was confronted with, certainly God, by His Holy Spirit, through the power of the risen Christ, can defeat indwelling sin in our lives. We do not have to be subjected to sin. We don't have to act as if it's our master. The only sinless hero in the Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our refuge. He is our support. He is our salvation. And we need him every day of our lives. We've seen a little bit about Peter's sin here uh, and thought about the lessons that we have in that. Let's see in the last verse here, verse 72, uh, Peter's sorrow. Uh, After Peter's third denial, the rooster crows a second time. I'll read the verse again. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. After Jesus' third denial, Luke records that Jesus, either from the upper room or perhaps now he's being led out after his trial, Jesus turns and he looks at Peter after this third denial. And Peter realizes his sin. He is cut to the heart. And here we have this rough fisherman who spends long hours in the boat working with back-breaking labor. He's a tough, gruff kind of guy. And he is broken down to tears here. He's probably crying right in front of the very people who have been accusing him. Uh, He is reduced to tears. I think it's interesting. uh, Peter has been so worried about being associated with Jesus and the consequences that might come to him. And we might understand that. Jesus is being put on trial. Uh, He is a trial that might lead to his death. So we might, in some sense, sympathize with Peter there, but he is so afraid of what might happen to him that he denies the Lord Jesus Christ. And he breaks down and weeps publicly. You know what? They didn't put hands on him. They didn't capture him. They didn't arrest him. They didn't kill Peter at this point. Uh, He has been so worried, and yet he doesn't get arrested. Uh, Now he's publicly weeping, and they leave him be. I think that's just the reality of of sin. When we act out of fear, we so often make fools of ourselves, honestly. Uh, We make decisions that really aren't that rational. And sin always makes a fool out of us. If we make a deal with sin, we will always get the worst end of the deal. With all of that here, though, I think the, the important thing we need to see is that Peter repents. Uh, after this, Peter turns in his heart away from his sin. Uh, we see that he's broken down to tears. Uh, I think it's important for us to consider repentance and true repentance at this point as we see Peter. We only get a glimpse of Peter. If this is all that we're given from Peter's life. We wouldn't necessarily know 
what's going on in his heart exactly, but we do see the rest of the story for Peter. We can, I think, fairly say that he is genuinely repenting here. Uh, There is a difference between regret and repentance. Uh, I think all of us have probably experienced the non-apology of somebody saying, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. It doesn't take too many of those before you realize, wait a minute, they're not apologizing for anything. Uh, the, the reality is there is a difference between uh, being sorry for some things and being sorry for the right things. Uh, and the reality is people do this to God all the time. They might say sorry for something. That it's really easy to be sorry and to have regret for the consequences that our sins bring. Our sins bring sometimes really painful consequences. And it's easy to be sorry for that. It's easy to wish things were different. That's still different, though, than being sorry for the sin itself. There's a difference between being sorry for the consequences that come on us and being sorry for the sin itself. Uh, We see examples in the scriptures of somebody like Esau. Think of the story of Esau. He gives up his birthright for a bowl of chili or stew or something. You know, he, he gives up his birthright, his father's blessing, and the inheritance for one bowl of food because he was super hungry. He was about to die, you know. Probably not, but that's what he felt like. Then he does end up losing the blessing, and we see a very torn man. Esau is weeping. He's sad. Hebrews 12 tells us about this in Hebrews 12, 17. He, he seeks the blessing with tears, the author of Hebrews tells us, but he finds no repentance. Esau was a very sorry man. Esau wasn't a man who hated his sin, though. He regretted what happened on account of his foolishness and his sin, his lust. He's sorry for it, but he actually doesn't hate his sin. He doesn't turn from his sin. Uh, We see elsewhere, Paul will describe an important distinction. In 2 Corinthians 7, you can turn there if you like. You can listen along if you'd rather. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. uh, As we read 1 and 2 Corinthians, we see that the Apostle Paul often has some very hard words for the Corinthians, calling them to repentance, to turn from certain actions or thoughts. Uh, Here in 2 Corinthians 7, we see that the Corinthians have gotten a rebuke, and they've responded well to it. And in that, we do see a a distinction, an important distinction between godly and worldly grief. Uh, Chapter 7, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5, says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I might rejoice, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while." As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. Paul talks here about a godly grief and a worldly grief. And we see in this the signs of a godly grief that Paul describes. Uh, The Corinthians turned from sin. Not only did they turn away from sin, but in a sense they turned on it. They hated their sin. There was an indignation towards their sin. There was an eagerness to free themselves from the sin and the charge of it. Godly grief leads to salvation without regret. Uh, and back in our passage in, uh, in Mark chapter 14, we see that Peter, uh, he exhibits a grief. Uh, we see elsewhere that, in fact, it is a godly grief. Uh, he does turn from his sin. And if we compare him with Judas, we see a different situation. Peter turns from his sin, and he does turn to the Lord. Uh, Judas regrets what he did. Uh, Matthew's gospel tells us uh, that although he he turns, he, he in a sense turns, and that he regrets it, he wants to go a different direction, he goes out and he adds to the sin of denying the Lord, the sin of murdering himself. Uh, his was a worldly grief, and it literally led to his physical death. Uh, Peter has a different cr- kind of grief here, uh, one of the things we also see throughout the scriptures related to genuine repentance is that true repentance leads to joy. Uh, listen to David in Psalm 32, 1-2. As he's crying out to the Lord in thanksgiving for his forgiveness. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Uh, David has joy in the Lord, Uh, having been forgiven. Even Peter found joy in the Lord. In fact, Jesus comes to him, John 21 tells us, and commissions him to serve his his flock. Uh, For everything that Peter did that we just read about, he was forgiven by the Lord. He was accepted by the Lord. And we see that joy in Peter as well. As you read the first few verses of Peter's first letter, uh, he's blessing the Lord as he's encouraging this church. Uh, Peter doesn't spend the rest of his life in Mopesville, moping around on his moped. Uh, Yes, he sinned and he failed. But in seeking the Lord, he found forgiveness. Uh, David, Psalm 51, 12, says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uh, Peter's heart must have been broken into a thousand pieces. But through forgiveness, he found joy in the Lord's salvation. You know, sometimes people go to God for forgiveness. They're convicted of sin. They go to God for forgiveness. They ask for forgiveness. And then they go on to live their lives as if they haven't been forgiven. Uh, There's something that is skewed in that way of thinking. The question I would ask for that is, (laughs) is our judgment superior to God's judgment? Will God forgive us, and yet we're going to continue to hold our feet to the fire. Could we ever pay back 
to God even one sin by a lifetime's worth of self-hatred? We can't. If the cross doesn't cover our sins, I promise you nothing in ourselves is going to cover it. Either we will find forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ or we will find it nowhere. Sometimes we have to be reminded of the grace of God. It's nothing that we do that's going to bring us back into favor with God. It's simply his mercy and his kindness, his forgiveness. God's forgiveness is complete. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. That should run down to the bottom of our hearts. Our sins have been forgiven. Christian, I hope you have joy this morning in the Lord. Maybe it's been a rough week and you don't feel it this moment. I hope you find joy in the Lord. We have been forgiven of all of our sins, of all of our trespasses. Everything that we have done against God, that we've brought to Him and laid before Him, He's paid for in the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. It is dealt with. We do have forgiveness in the Lord. That is a beautiful thing. The God of the universe has forgiven us. John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, uh, he's known well for saying something towards the end of his life. He said, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ is a great Savior. And John Newton had some pretty uh, out there kinds of sins. He was a slave trader before he came to know Christ. Uh, he had some real sins in his life, but he was forgiven. And for us, we can find forgiveness in the Lord. If this morning, if your heart isn't at peace with the Lord, then I encourage you to go to Him and find forgiveness. If you have come to know the Lord and have entered into His forgiveness, rejoice in it. There's probably a lot of things going on in the lives of each one of us. Set your heart to give thanks to the Lord, to give, to give Him praise, and to rejoice in the fact that you will be with Him for eternity. Your sin is no longer the barricade that keeps you from knowing God. But we can draw near to him. We can know him in truth through his son, Jesus Christ. As we come back to our text in Mark 15 next week, uh, we're going to see Jesus before Pontius Pilate. I want to invite the men to prepare for communion. And Elizabeth, if you would come to play.